isn't it, though? Mmm. For, for context, you're eating cake. Mmm. <laughs> I, I would have put more rhubarb in, frankly. Is there rhubarb in it? Yeah, exactly. You've I put, can't, can't taste the rhubarb. You've put rhubarb in cake. Mmm. What do you mean? You've put... Like, you're saying it like it's not a thing. Mmm. Why would you do that? Because, mm. like, why would you put anything in cake? Yeah, but it looks, it looks really nice, and I've not got to it <laughs> yet, and now you've told me it's got rhubarb in it. Rhubarb. The rhubarb's just hit me. Gorgeous. It's the combination of lemon and rhubarb is... It's, it's excellent, Hugh. Sounds excellent. like the lack of rhubarb is going to be a real feature for Stephen, though, let's be honest. I'm, I'm eating this... What about rhubarb crumble? Rhubarb crumble is... Oh, no, is, I wouldn't oh, put come rhubarb on. in crumble. Seriously. You wouldn't put rhubarb in anything, then, would That's you? That's one of the greatest crumbles. Fact, I wouldn't put rhubarb in my mouth full stop. Really? It's just about to. Not like a stalk of rhubarb dipped in sugar. It's, it's awesome. I'm doing this out of friendship. Look Sounds at his, like look you're going to get a slice face. and a half, Chinch. Look at his face. Oh, I hope he hits a big, big dollop of rhubarb right now. Stephen, <laughs> what are you thinking? Describe it. It's radio. Well, it is what I assumed was a lemon drizzle cake. And it has a very lemon drizzle cake kind of taste There to is it. no lemon and, drizzle through. And consistency, but... Uh, it's nice, it's good, well done. Drizzle well fans done. will know that drizzle uh, applies to drizzle. Yeah. There is no drizzle. There is simply a lemon topping mm. with a lemon curd drizzled on top of the topping. But there has been no lemon drizzled through the cake. Simply some lemon zest. And you, you made this with your own fair hands? I did. Who, where, the recipe, where did you get it from? The same place I get every recipe, from the internet. Really? Yes. And it's a lemon curd and rhubarb cake that that would be how i describe the two mm. major features of that cake it's, it's, it's lemon tremendous curd and rhubarb i'd probably put the rhubarb first really? rhubarb and lemon curd in fact that's i think how it was described on the internet okay. where have you found i thought you've been quite busy where have you found time for this nonsense during the time that i am busy because i am a loving son-in-law and i'll prepare things that are required of me oh yes it was your father-in-law's birthday wasn't it to be honest with you i managed to fit it in on a very very busy saturday where i spent some time waiting in a dentist waiting lounge and also having brunch with friends. So, so there we go. Well done, me. Oh, other friends? Yeah, well. You have other friends other, apart you know how from this, us. You other know how friends this he brunches works. with. Yeah. You're my weekday friends, and everybody else is a weekend friend. Because you two will never be weekend friends, because you are too busy on weekends. So I don't even try anymore. So we fill the gaps in his schedule. Yeah, well, you're five to there too, so I think you're doing pretty well. Anyway, we're getting off the, the subject of cake here. <laughs> has this cake been universally accepted by the masses? Yes, it has, as indeed all cakes should be. Apart from Stephen Wyatt, no, who it's, it's clearly good. the rhubarb is the deal breaker. It's good. I, I will reluctantly agree that the rhubarb has not held this cake back as much as I thought it might. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. The formal element of the food is actually to come. Because Chinch is performing his now annual treat of taking the pod crew out to lunch. Less, Thanks, less Rory. Less Rory. Because we did it with Rory last year, he had to leave to attend a child-related emergency. So mm. I thought we'd do it without him this year to avoid any potential dramas. Yes, he's already dealing with child-related dramas, probably, yes. on holiday with his family. We, we essentially insure ourselves against Rory-related family dramas. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm providing the cash. You're providing the place to eat, which I am slightly worried about. Because why you've mentioned a place with a slightly dubious name, and I don't know what kind of fare we're going to get, but I'm paying for it, so I've just got to be happy, haven't I? Well, we're taking Chinch to a Didsbury institution. How very dare you? Yeah. Institution? You're not leaving me behind, are you? Because I'm mentally ill or anything? You mean, <laughs> it's you not mean Ar we're not eatery. going to Arkham? No. Oh right, okay, it's an eatery, and and it's called. And giggles for a good reason because you have a lot of fun and the food's terrible. Um, to tide us over until what will be lunchtime and uh, the time of a traditional meal known as lunch, mm. I have provided our two hungry toddlers with some rhubarb and lemon curd cake, which I baked for my father in law's birthday, which has been universally accepted despite the fact that any traditional element to a cake is the kind of thing that Stephen refuses to eat. Uh, joining me, Hugh Ferris, are Stephen Wyeth, who has avoided making any silly statements on air for a little while, I hope, and Andy Hinchcliffe, whose latest contribution to Private Eye's commentator balls, mm. spotted by Matt Stafford, thank you very much indeed, not Matt Stafford, the Detroit Lions quarterback, by the way, oh. was this. If the goalkeeper had gone the right way, he'd have got nowhere near it if it was on target. I, I clearly didn't say that, because I've said this, this, this comment many, many times, and what it is, a penalty is that good that even if the goalkeeper goes the right way, he's not saving it. So, in essence, that's what I would have said, because I very rarely get my words wrong. 
Are you saying um, this is fake news? Private I, eye are true. guilty is that of Donald fake Trump? news. Who's tweeted this? Donald Trump has not tweeted this. Because I wouldn't say anything as, as... Just say it, just read it again, as if... Just read it. Shall I read it in, in, in the way that I just did, which yeah. suggested that you're an idiot? Yes. If the goalkeeper had gone the right way, he'd have got nowhere near it if it was on target. See, the, clearly the last bit... Because the penalty, it's, it's going to be a penalty. A penalty has been scored. And what you naturally say is the keeper's gone the right way, but it's such a good penalty that he's, he's never going to save it. Normally they go the wrong way. But if it hits the side netting the other way, you'd say, well, even if you dive that way, he's not going to save it. That's what I said and probably did say. That's just, that's just laughable. Can I, can, I sue, can I sue this person? Yes, you can absolutely sue them. Excellent. That, I'm sure, is coming. And Private Eye have got no litigation experience whatsoever. But at the very least, perhaps the person who submitted that should split the 20 quid that they get from they get Private ten, Eye. Ten is it quid, 10? Ten all right. You, you, you deserve at least a fiver of that money, Chinch. I deserve all the money and more. <laughs> Our summer specials are complete on Seppi's Money. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, from uh, the fact that they are finished, two things have become clear. Number one is that football fun was an unqualified success. And number two is that we are not at all in agreement with number one. Uh, We do thank you uh, for all your comments, questions and follow-ups from our Legitimate Football Voice series, including those people who would like to make football fun a weekly occurrence. Uh, We are humbled by your enthusiasm for our work and by your massively superior intelligence on the matter. And that's for sure. One person. One person. One person suggested we did it more regularly. And who was that? Was Actually, it? no, one person did, and then somebody else came in to add. That is a 100% increase on that one person. Two people enjoyed Football Fun to an extent that they would like to see it a little bit more often. But, but, but why? Do, do they just enjoy my humiliation? That might be part yeah. of it. Because even I enjoyed my humiliation, in a way. Did you? Sometimes, some, yeah, I'm so self-deprecating that I like things to go horribly wrong for me. Uh, you can get in touch with us with comments upon our Legitimate Football Series, Le- Legitimate Football Voice Series, or indeed Football Fun, which I think we're all agreed around the table, will never return at setpiecemenu or setpiecemenu at gmail.com. But in the meantime, something that simply couldn't wait. A new feature prompted by one person, but that makes it legitimate, as we've already decided, it was prompted by listener Michael, who is at MJA Peter on Twitter. Michael, thank you. In episode three of our summer series, you may well remember, there was one of our now trademarked tangents relating this time to Jack Reacher. Half the team's love of said rugged justice-reaping nomad, and the other half of the team's pure disgust of said position taken by the former. Well, Michael suggested that Chinch might be able to read a particular section of one of Lee Child's masterpieces, given that you have already read it because you've read every single one, Andrew. So episode one of our new feature, Out of Context Reacher, comes from the novel called Personal. Oh, one of my favourites, one of my personal favourites. Is it? And I bet you can't remember what happened. I can't, no. Because as soon as you I, finish... I'm reaching, sure he batters people. <laughs> yeah, that might be right. But in a humane way. It's, it's because he is dishing out justice. Justice. For those who are wrong. Absolutely. Um, it is from the novel called Personal, which, like every Jack Reacher novel, you read it, you finish it, and you can't remember anything of what just happened previously. And it is about boots. So... Not the boots... The chemist. Uses, not the boots he uses to kick people Chinch, with. if you wouldn't mind reading... Yeah. Do you need your glasses? Uh, Do you need your granddad's glasses? glasses? I'm not going to be able to read that, Stephen. It's too small. It's smaller than the one that I was offering. If you can hold it closer to his face. This is a bit weird, isn't it? But it is out of context, isn't it? You should know that this is one of the novels that has Reacher as a first-person narrator to his own story rather than being Reacher in the third person. So the I is Reacher in this case. Can I have a practice first? Uh, She used the menu again and the arrows... She said, it's set on silent. I nodded again. So that's what's happened. I should give this Romford number to General O'Day. Don't you think MI5 could trace it? To a cash payment in Boots the Chemist. Doesn't help. What's Boots the Chemist? Their pharmacy chain, like CVS. John Boots set it up in the middle of the 19th century. He probably looked just like the guy who built the wall around Wallace Court. It started out as a herbal medicine store in a place called Nottingham, which is way north of here. Well, how satisfying that was. I think, again, universal acceptance of the fact that apparently um, Jack Reacher actually comes from southwest Manchester. Hold on, hold on. This, this is personal, is the one that is based in England, and it is truly awful. 
Mainly, mainly because it mentions things like Boots the Chemist and the M25. It didn't work at all for me. It's the one Jack Reacher that I would gladly pulp. Seriously, it was terrible. And it's that, got to be based in America. And that in places comes like, from a Reacher fan. Like Little Whore. Places that we've never heard of, but we presume exist. <laughs> Little Whore Dakota. Yes. North Dakota. Uh, well, if you have any uh, excerpt suggestions based in America, and Chinch will do one or maybe two words in an American accent, send them to at setpiecemenu or setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Could, there could be a televisual series here as well with me in a in a in maybe a smoking jacket with a cravat in a big leather chair roaring fire Hinchcliffe reads Reacher what do you think yes but as long as you only do it in your normal voice and you don't ever go into the American accent but I have to because that's how Reacher talks I can just hear Nottingham that's how American people say Nottingham you talk I see him. That's how that works. So to our subject today, which we thought we'd talk about following on from a couple of significant sporting moments of the summer. It so happened that they occurred on the same day, in fact, within a matter of minutes of each other. England winning the Cricket World Cup and Novak Djokovic uh, winning Wimbledon. Also, both happened on the pod's shores, but that wasn't even just the second thing that connected them. Both victors, be they team or individual, displayed their innate ability to get things done when it mattered, performing under the most intense of pressure. This is the sporting clutch gene, which is either a pithy way of describing how an athlete comes good right at the death or an infuriating Americanism that's just the latest to be allowed to infiltrate the Queen's English. Uh, I'm very much in the former camp. So let's try and use this to talk to our former pro about how you perform under pressure and how he managed to win many England caps, seven, and countless trophies won by doing just that. The Community Shield, as Pep Guardiola has rightly proved last season, it's a trophy. Proved? Proved? It's a trophy. So, in essence, I won two trophies. We have cleared this up on many occasions. Yes. You, Jose Mourinho, and Pep Guardiola are all wrong about the Community Shield. I'm in good company, though. (laughs) It is excellent. You're going to be wrong. Be wrong in the company of Mourinho and Guardiola. That's what I say. Enjoy it. I'm sure it'll yeah. be a lovely meal. Yeah, but I didn't have any mental strength. I was weak as a kitten. Is this why you, is this why you want to talk about it and this say, they're all, Novak Djokovic, great. The England cricket team, really good. Chinch, what went wrong for you? Is that, that basically where I, we're going I with mean, this? I mean, you may well suffer by the comparison slightly, but yeah. at the same time, you could perhaps transport yourself into the mind of somebody way more successful and capable of doing things in clutch moments and, and perhaps tell us what was missing in... Your mind, which <laughs> illustrates, therefore, by definition, what is not in there. I know, I know you're being self-deprecating, Chinch, but you must have had some mental strength. <laughs> you must have had more than average to have made it as a pro. And I wouldn't normally leap to your defence under such mm. circumstances. Sadly, I feel my mental strength came from getting myself fit after injury. Seriously. So there you go. So I, Yeah, but that, I think, yeah, that's a benefit to me and, of course, the teams that I play for because I was so good when I played for them. They, they desperately needed me back on the pitch. So I was actually doing, I was actually <laughs> doing with that. <laughs> myself and football in general a lot of good by digging deep and doing what was necessary to get me back on the pitch. So actually, yes, I did. And I've always said I learned so much more from being injured than being fit. But I'm trying to think of games when I kind of kept the faith and thought, you know, this will be... Again, what, is, that, is that something you can... Was I coached in being mentally strong? Is it something that you're born with? Is it something that develops? You can be coached well, the, to be this way? The, the, the fact that it's called a clutch gene suggests mm. that it is indeed genetic. And I use the word innate deliberately because it seems to be something that is within a person that they are able to call upon in these moments. So... Perhaps if you could tell us, and and essentially it's two sides of the same coin. If you're talking about mental strength during the time that you were coming back from injury, you are surely talking about something which is similar because you are able to close off everything around you that might, whether it be negative energy or, or thoughts that you might not come back or concerns about the length of the rehab time. All these things are as they would say, noise, that you are able to shut out. Mm. So the, 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 the fact that these incredible athletes are able to display that at the right moments is part of that, is it not? To close off what might infiltrate in a negative way. Well, I was hearing some of the, the interviews with Novak Djokovic after he beat Roger Federer in the Wimbledon final and, and how he, all the support for Federer in that final, Djokovic w- heard the shouts of, come on Roger, as come on Novak. So is that incre- again, is that something that only he has or he's able to, to kind of tune into seeing things in a completely different way to get the very best out of himself I think it maybe it is in there to start with but there must that self-belief I think I had more self-belief strangely when I was injured and I knew 
that it, there was only me that could get this thing sorted. So I wore myself off and concentrated. I didn't go and watch games, didn't watch training. I just did what I needed to do day to day. I, I didn't have a lot of faith in myself as a footballer. I generally didn't think I was very good at football. It seems I'm not just saying this is generally how I thought about myself. So if you don't have faith in your ability to do, do the job that you do, naturally that's going to put you on the back foot because you do need a, a sense of not arrogance, but confidence and self-belief to actually go and do a, a job like I did. So I think I muddled through in many ways on the pitch. And actually I found it easier when I was left alone to concentrate on what I needed to do off the pitch because no one was really watching me or judging me. It's kind of, so I was more part of an, an individual. When you're part of a team game, you feel a responsibility to the rest of the team as well. And again, I, I do generally think that I saw myself in a, a very different way than most people might have saw the way that I played and, and my career. I th I'm going to have to take on the role of sort of team psychologist for the duration of this podcast. So that is that is a vital role. Chinch, you clear if you you can't say on the one hand I had this mental strength to overcome all of the injury problems I have and not recognise that surely you bought that to play in other parts of your career when you were standing over a free kick, for example, or a corner kick, or you were going for a fifty-fifty challenge, knowing that you had to succeed in those situations it, it you were being relied upon by your teammates That's there must was, have been yeah. some mental strength well, I've talked a lot about Willie Donachie and, and the, the coaching that we did as a team and what he did for me and many others individually as well so maybe that was part of it is actually when you're doing something on a football pitch that is individual like taking it and all the responsibility is yours getting into those routines again is that the mental discipline that you need it's not just the the technical ability you need to take a free kick it's getting yourself into a state where you can produce the very best that you can produce so in a way he was working psychologically probably more than actually technically because he was again they, they would i'm sure people who knew me then would I, I did suffer a lack of confidence for 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 different reasons both personal reasons away from the game and actually things that happened during games as well and the injuries that i picked up as well i was never fully i think there's only maybe two years when i really felt I had the very, or gave the very best that I could give. I understand what you're saying. There must be something in there to enable you to get to that stage, a professional stage in the first place, and to be able to maintain it for such a, a long period of time. 15, 16 years is a long time. With all the injuries as well, I could at any point have just said, I simply can't do this again. But I always, again, I felt a responsibility to my family, to my kids, to everything else. So I did feel, I did feel it was a lot, lot easier handling these things away from the game when the responsibility was all mine. But maybe that's what Willie was doing. So, right, the responsibility at the, on this occasion is all yours. So we know you've got the technical ability. How do we get you to think about what you're doing and believe in what you're doing and trust in what you're doing and know that you can do it well? Never really appreciated it, maybe, at the time. It was probably more about my mental approach. To, and it is. It's all about the... I talked about the rugby kickers going through the process of setting the ball down, of setting, of feeling the, the, the turf underneath. All this, presumably, is, is setting you out mentally to do what needs to be done. But the, the, the point of the clutch gene is to suggest that this sports person or a team, a collective of sports people, are able to do it when it matters most because the pressure is at its highest or most intense. Can you give us an example of when, even, even if you didn't have or you didn't feel like you had mental strength to deal with it, can you talk about a moment where the pressure was like that? Is there, is there a moment that you can think of where you thought... This really matters. This is this is as intense as it's ever got in my career. Well, the FA the FA Cup final was um, a game. It was only FA Cup final I played in, and it was a game I simply wanted to get over and win. I I, I enjoyed the build up to it. I hated the ninety minutes. Really glad that we won it, but I just wanted to get through that 90 minutes without being the person that made the mistake. I never saw myself as being the hero on that day. I just wanted to get it over with. One of the, it seems a strange thing to say, it was one of the most, it was more traumatic than playing for England, definitely. I felt more comfortable playing for England, maybe because it was a bit further down the line, I was a little bit older, and I experienced maybe going through an FA Cup final. But if you've never done something like that before, people always say it's the greatest football experience of your life. For me, it was horrendous. Because that, maybe that's the kind of person that I was. I had a bit of an injury at the time as well. I didn't want to let the team down. I just wanted to do what needed to be done. I didn't want to be the star. I didn't want to score the winning goal. I just wanted to be part of a winning team. Because in essence, I, I played my part in the lead up to the final. I just wanted to get the final over with and get it won. I didn't just want to get it over with regardless of the, of the outcome. I, I desperately wanted to win it for my teammates. But I, I was completely... That's the one game I would say that I've just felt was too much... 
at that time to cope with because the enormity of it for Everton as well we hadn't won anything for such a long period of time haven't won anything since I don't think Everton have they so it was an enormous occasion that I think we're talking about mental strength that's the one game when people say oh you must have been able to cope with the pressure that's the first time I probably ever mentioned this is actually that game to me was too much my England debut playing any England game I never felt like that whatsoever I felt a lot more intimidated by Moldova (laughs) they were the Moldovans were 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 powerful beasts but I I managed mentally and physically to overcome them but that that FA Cup final was simply at that time for me was too much to cope with because of the enormity of it all that's extraordinary to me I think I can understand most of what you're saying there about that because the expectation would weigh so heavily Mm. and there there was at that time such a huge focus wasn't there on on the FA Cup final as being the game of the season but not even that, that thing about not being the star of the show, not scoring the winning goal. Was that sort of realisation of fulfilling a dream, you know, that, 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 that moment, that idea that you might be the one to smash in the winner, not something that galvanised you? No, I wanted to be, again, wanted to be part of a winning team. Was, it was wonderful that Paul Rideout scored the goal. Really pleased for him because that's his job. He's a centre forward. He should be scoring the winning goal, not me. I, I wanted to play my part. Well, fact, well Graham Stewart should have been well, scoring Graham the winning Stewart goal. Graham Stewart should have scored, but he'll always regret that for the rest of his life. But he doesn't seem to do every time I see him and say, do you remember when you hit the bar at Wembley? Never seems to affect him. But anyway, no, I, I genuinely didn't want to be the one to make the mistake and I, tend, I think the more I think about it this, this tended to be my mantra in playing for England don't, don't be the one that makes the mistake that costs your team because ultimately I was a defender so I wasn't thinking about being the hero or yeah, I never imagined I watched cup finals as a kid and I never thought I want to be the one tapping it in from five yards to take all the glory that's never ever been in my mind and most kids would say, like Novak Djokovic talks about being at Wimbledon and being the champion and, and people looking at him as an individual saying how wonderfully... I never, wanted, I never wanted that. I've never wanted to be that person. I want to be part of a successful team. I did as a kid, but it's mainly that how mentally I approached that cup final. It was, and I'm not, I'm not embarrassed to say it, it was too much. And I bet there's a lot of players who've gone into games and thought this is just... This is just so unusual, it's virtually impossible. Not saying I buckled because I did exactly what I needed to do. In stopping Roy Keane influence the game, I played my part. But in essence, that's not really taking a full part. It's actually doing something to stop the opposition player. But I still felt as though I did my job doing that. I was going to ask you, do you feel like, given what you've just told us about how you felt during the game, and that was the most intense pressure you faced throughout your career... Mm. Would you say that you played well? Have you watched it back? Have you been able to assess never your watch any, Never watch So you've not watched it back. So what know. was your instinct afterwards, immediately, that you had played well? Um, I didn't even think about whether I'd play well or badly. We'd won. And I, I, I did realise that actually the, the job that I was given and the injury that I had, I couldn't probably physically do. And this is nothing to do with why I felt... Um, under pressure I had an injection in my leg I couldn't feel kind of the bottom half of my left leg which is not that helpful when you're left footed but anyway <laughs> I, I, just, I just realised actually and that, actually Everton's approaching that game we were playing against a better team so the first thing you have to do against a better team is stop them playing and to a, d- a degree we did that to a degree I did that with, with Roy Keane so I'm thinking well actually I did under those circumstances I could have completely gone under and Roy Keane could have made a run I didn't track him he crosses they score and I would be to blame for it. So in a way, I, I feel I got out of that game as much as I could possibly get out of that game. And Everton got everything out of the game because we, we won the cup. But it was, it was, I was so, that final whistle, it was just the, the, the best relief I've ever felt in my life to think I've played my part in a cup final winning team and I've kind of got away with it a little bit because this, this just didn't feel... This just didn't feel right to me as if I truly belonged. And then playing for England, playing for England, <laughs> I didn't feel as though I truly belonged. Maybe you would have got eight caps if you thought you belonged. Um, the- yeah, but if you've got nobody telling you, uh, Willie Donnick that they did kind of break the mould for me and they did tell me. But even when they were saying your potential that you have, the ability that you've got, I was kind of thinking, yeah, but there's a book coming. And there wasn't a book coming. It's, you have it, we're going to drag it out of you. And then from that point on, as a person, I developed and had more self-confidence. But up to that point, all I'd ever kind of dealt with was what's going on inside your own head. And maybe people criticising you, you know, certain coaches that I, I worked with when I was a kid. And they, they, they do put doubts in your mind. And they maybe presume that all players are strong enough to cope with this negative criticism. Or, you know, that's not good enough. This isn't good enough. And I, I wasn't. So I needed 
Joe and Willie to come along to actually change my mindset, which then developed me into, into something else. I would like to ask you, and it's just a brief question because Steve, the psychologist, has a considerable amount of work to do by Why the sounds of Why has he brought in a chaise long? I'm not lying down on that, you know. <laughs> Get on the Chesterfield, Chinch. We've got some serious discussions How to have. How much do you like charge an hour? An A3-sized book that, that just lines that <laughs> yeah. you're scribbling furiously in. When the final whistle went, you just said that it was the most incredible feeling of release and relief. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what did you do? Did you sit down, fall over? Did you scream, jump? Can you remember what you did? Yeah, the first person I went to was, was Willie Donachie because I was so pleased for... So you just sprinted? Uh, sprinted. Well, when I, I sprinted because I couldn't feel my left <laughs> you, leg. You hobbled. Because no, again, I realised what it had taken from them to get the team to where it was, to get me to play my part to a degree in that as well. And obviously my, my family were there. So that's the main thing, holding the cup, showing it to your family. That's the kind of thing you watched on cup final grandstand when I was a kid, it was actually holding the trophy, not being the person that won the trophy, but saying I actually achieved. And actually it was beyond what I'd ever thought was, was for me, was truly possible because of that lack of self-belief. It, it, I just never, never felt that I would have enough to win anything. And it wasn't necessarily the, the, the technical side of it. I, I did think everybody was better at playing my position than I was, even when I got to the England States. But again, I developed working under William Joe, I developed into, a different person, not necessarily an arrogance, but a confidence and a belief because of what they'd instilled in me over two or three years. So to go from the cup final in 95 to playing for England, maybe a year, 18 months later, there's the development. And actually that came through working with, with good coaches who now, clearly I see it, they were working with you both mentally and physically. It's fascinating, but almost frustrating to hear Chinch talk about things like this, because in many ways I would suspect that you're not typical of a former footballer in the way that you thought about things then or analyse them looking back now because the, my assumption at least would be that that most successful athletes have a certain swagger and self-confidence about them that helps them get to the point in their career that that they do and, and I guess the, the way that you look at the game is perhaps led to how you've had a career after playing mm -hmm. because a lot of a lot of good pundits and good coaches weren't necessarily great players because perhaps in the way that you're speaking, they were aware of their own limitations yeah. Yeah. and they didn't allow themselves to be clouded by necessarily what they knew they could do well. They were more focused on, on what they thought they weren't all that good at and that has helped you perhaps after your playing career and perhaps hindered you a little bit from what you were saying during it because if you had had a little bit more self-confidence and if... You know, a, a team psychology. I would. I'm assuming that you know the likes of Howard Kendall and Paul Jewell didn't mm. lean heavily on um, sort of sports psychology as part they of lent their on certain uh, things, not sports <laughs> psychology, mainly bars. But, <laughs> but if you'd had if you'd had access to that Absolutely. sort of person yeah. during your career, perhaps they might have been able to get you a little bit more focused and single-minded on what you could Should do have well. Given Eileen Drury one extra yeah, game. Also, yeah, that's a yeah, great shout. Yeah, but yeah. Also, when I started playing, the culture of how things were back then, younger players were just well, you're 18 years old, you should be able to run all day. They, they, you weren't really coached. I've talked about this. I wasn't really properly coached until I worked with Joe Royal and, and uh, Willie Donnelly at Everton. I was kind of 26. So you think, well, how have you gone through that period of time without being... Pro because I wasn't properly coached, both physically and, more importantly, probably mentally now. I'm sure the way that sports psychologists are involved in football clubs, getting into... Because, OK, I, I never saw myself as a football player. I saw myself as a person playing football. And I think that, that human, I, I always saw, I, I thought I was getting away with it for many years. I'm thinking, I, people still believe I can do all these things. And when I was a kid, they were saying, oh, you're going to be signing for Liverpool, you're going to play for England in three years. And I'm thinking, are they, are they talking about somebody else? Because I don't see that in myself. And that's just the way I, I am, the way I'm built, I suppose. So I, I never saw, I, I watch footballers now who, again, have that swagger that you talk about. Is that a shell they build around them? Is that naturally what they are? But to me, they look like fully formed football players and sportsmen. I always felt I was a person playing a sport, which is very, very different. And that cup final really brought it home to me that I was just, in many ways, like a 10 or 12-year-old kid playing in a 25, 26-year-old body in a cup final and thinking, whoa, this is, this is a lot to handle here. And I did find, but again, I, I still managed maybe to a degree to dig in and do what was necessary to a point to maybe stop the opposition playing. So I still was able to bring something to bear. 
But it's the development after that in, in myself and how I think. And I've taken it on through the rest of my life. My confidence now, it's not an arrogance. It's a confidence in hopefully what I'm doing and what I believe in. And that definitely wasn't there in 95, but it did come soon after. And the confidence that you have now in your secondary career is mainly due to the people sat around this table. So it's very important yeah, that you and, have the and, same coaching. Uh, well, Rory, who's been instrumental yes, in my rise Rory. to the very top, sadly, mainly, here to take the accolade. Mainly Rory. Um, you can, I mean, it's interesting that you, you mentioned about the build-up to the FA Cup final was okay. It was just the 90 minutes whereas mm-hmm. um, before the uh, in the coverage um, before the uh, Cricket World Cup final which was on the same day as the Wimbledon final um, Will Greenwood as a representative of the 2003 rugby winning a uh, rugby World Cup winning side we're really diversifying on sports today aren't we, we are we're doing very well I hope we're not alienating our American there's, listeners there's not a lot for the English fans to be supporting over the years I'm afraid apart from 66 2003 now 2019 but before that he talked about the fact that he was genuinely happy uh, beforehand, about two days beforehand, to pull his calf deliberately so that he wouldn't have to play in the, the World Cup final because he was so yeah. nervous and didn't want to be essentially there and potentially a culprit or a scapegoat or somebody who made a mistake. So you're saying that that only came to you at the moment of the kind of the whistle, if you like, and a couple of days beforehand, you were okay. So there, there are those, and he's a World Cup winner mm. from the same part of the world as well, which is quite interesting. Um, to something you, something in the water, something in the water. Mm. But he, he obviously felt something incredibly deeply, mm-hmm. and he, he said only ten years afterwards was he prepared to admit that. Mm. But given that there are those who reach that that kind of pinnacle of the game, who who felt that too, do you? think that maybe you are not necessarily so against the grain and it is only the very few who are able to display an ability to shut it all out, perform regardless of all those outside influences, but also not only just perform, but perform to their best. And in an occasion like the Rugby World Cup final, which Johnny Wilkinson nailed with drop goal Mm -hmm. in extra time, like the Cricket World Cup final, where there were a series of players who nailed their skills just when it mattered most, Butler, Stokes and and Jofra Archer. These are people who are very much in the minority, Exactly, which should make you feel a little bit better. I I don't feel bad about it because it was what it was. I mean, I would. Really, should Uh, I be? Imagine the player you could have been, Chinch. Oh. Well, you wouldn't be with us. Yeah. He's, uh, he's, he's, not, he's not let anyone down other than himself, Hugh. <laughs> yes. So don't make him feel bad well, the, about the, that. The people that you've mentioned, these, these, these who, can, who can perform you know, in World Cup finals, or you know, look at a World Cup final to an FA Cup final, a World Cup final, you can understand. But again, Will Greenwood is a, is a person playing rugby with, and again, all the doubts come in about being the villain. And that's exactly what I'm saying, exactly what I'm saying. And maybe there's 90% of players are probably in that bracket that actually they go into cup finals, it, it might be the only one that they play in. And if you have the luxury of playing in five or six and, and playing in cup you presumably get used to it. If I'd have played in a bit more, but again, the development then when I played for England, I didn't have that fear or, or kind of lack of self-belief. So things had developed. So what maybe if I had that development like? before the cup final, I would have felt differently about that game. What would do you think, it's hard to know, but what would you have felt like should you have gone to the World Cup in 1998 and played at a World Cup or potentially... Terrified. Again, we're talking about Will Greenwood, I, was, I had an injury. And not, I didn't, I had an injury, so I was injured. But wow. actually, when I was on that plane, I think we told the story when I was Phil Neville and Dion Dublin and everybody, and in a way, they were all absolutely devastated about not being... In, in a way, it sounds really an awful thing to say, as if you, you shouldn't aspire to, to compete at the very highest level. But again, at that point, did, did I really feel... I could cope with the the scrutiny and would I enjoy because that's what it's ultimately about I know it's a job but you've got to go there and try and enjoy what you're doing because that brings out the best in you as well and I I know I wouldn't have done it I found it incredibly difficult being away from home for six weeks people say well it's a yeah but I I was I'm a home bird so I, I was very happy going to training and then going home again I had my kind of football family and then I went home to my own so I, I would have found that incredibly difficult and again when I went with England I had to put on that protective shell and pretend that I was an England player that's in essence what I was doing because I thought what am I doing here but then eventually as your club career develops and people that good people that you work with tell you that you can do these things and Glenn Hoddle's not picking you because there's nobody else there was nobody else but he still realized what a good player I was so again if, if good people are are telling you these things and picking you for, for the national team, you, you, at some point you've got to start believing it. And it, it only came, sadly, a lot later on in life. So I had maybe five years when I played, when I truly believed in the ability that I had and how I could. And then I started to help younger players as well because I started to see myself at Sheffield Wednesday, see those young players coming into the team and being treated badly as well. That I saw myself in that. So you're trying to then help them as a senior player. So, but that only came again with having worked with good people for, for three or four years.
we've, we've had a, a message on Twitter from a listener. I'll show Chinch the photo that was attached and get his initial reaction to this picture of you, Chinch, with a young Everton fan. Blimey, look at that. When's that from, would you say? Uh, I'm just looking at the Everton kit there. That's, that would be around... 94, 95-ish, would it be? Or earlier than that, maybe? The, earlier than that. The reason I, I go to this now is because the message that comes with this picture is perfectly sums up everything that you have been talking about so far today. It's from Sam White, at Sam White on Twitter, who says, I keep meaning to share this picture with you all. I told him he was my favourite player. He didn't believe me. To the extent he summoned over Duncan Ferguson, who he felt sure must be my genuine favourite player. Yeah. Does that sound like Chinch the footballer yeah, of the early 90s? That's Chinch the footballer completely, because why, why would anybody... I, I, I meet people now, you know, grown men who obviously watched me when I was playing, and they say, you, you're my favourite Everton player. And I'm thinking, yeah, but we had Duncan Ferguson and... and Barry Horn, why would De- Neville Southall? Why the hell? But again, but then it just makes you realise that you, you did have an impact, and then it, it does make you very proud that you did actually do so. And when I go back to Everton, the way I'm treated there, I'm thinking, yeah, but you saw me play. Why would you treat me so well? When in my eyes, okay, we won the cup final, and that clearly means an awful lot, and it means more as time goes by. And I think when you look back at things, players are always better than they were at the time and I always talk about this and saying I remember the, the poor games the bad games again like the cup final really sticks out for me for all not the wrong reasons because we won it but the, the wrong reasons for that was when I really appreciated what I was and may, it, has to, it has to limit then what you're capable maybe of, of, of achieving and again like Novak Djokovic or, or um, Will Greenwood playing in that World Cup final if they were able to develop and cope because that's what it is you're basically coping with the most extreme conditions that you can face in the job that you do and I'm not embarrassed to say that I don't think I was ever in the bracket of, of being truly comfortable in, in doing that to try and steer it back to what at least the perception of the norm would be um, rather than Chinch who seems to be a bit of a anomaly mm. as a as a professional athlete it strikes me that other than natural talent obviously which great sports people have that mental strength is the thing that sets them apart from the the general population and actually also within the context of their sport is probably the thing that gives them that extra few percent that takes them from from good to greatness yeah. that you need that ability to be able to overcome whether it's injuries mm-hmm. or whether it's physical challenges to to go on and achieve those moments that will will live long in the memory that will create history mm. that you somehow need to be able to put in the extra in training like Ben Stokes apparently has done to get himself into a position where he was one of the the key men in England winning the cricket world cup or whether the the US women who who won the women's world cup this summer that they were able to focus on their goal that they had a plan a path to see them through the competition that they were able to ride off the very, very fair criticism of their ridiculous over-celebration of scoring 13 goals against Thailand to stay on track for the duration of the tournament and actually get through games that they might otherwise have lost against the likes of Spain, France or, or even England and that yes, they had the natural talent but that isn't always enough that you also need to have that mental strength and that focus on your goal mm. to achieve what you are there to achieve. And, and without it, you might have come up short because how often do we hear the phrase, you know, bottle? it was a bottle job, they've bottled it. It's a really easy accusation to make of professional athletes that they didn't have mm. the mental strength to get them over the line. But it's not necessarily something that we so quickly recognise when they have been able to turn it around. England's men's run to the World Cup semi-final, football World Cup semi-final last summer, for example. No one really said... You know, it was the ease of their path to the stage of the competition that a lot of people were fixated with. And not the fact that they were able to say, this is the, these are the obstacles in front of them and we need to mentally make sure that we navigate each of those obstacles whether that's a penalty shootout against Colombia or getting the better of a Sweden side who've been a bit of a bogey team for us and yeah they came up short ultimately in the in the semi-final but that was probably more tactical than the mental they they didn't go about the game in the right way so it is a really easy accusation to make of somebody that they haven't got the mental strength required but we don't necessarily see quite so quickly 
when they have overcome those those hurdles. It, it is very lazy just to say they bottled it. And I, I would never, ever, because I've, I've been through it, I know what it's like, and it, is, it simply isn't like that. But it'd be great to speak to a psychologist who works with sportsmen, because all the, the people they're working with are different as well. They're all made very differently. So there won't be just one set plan. This is how we're going to get you mentally able to, to, to play at the very top level when the big games come along. You're all going to be dealing with it in the same way because people are so different. The psychologist must appreciate that in the person that they're dealing with and think, well, like Willie Donaghy with me, he just needed to, to work on one-to-one, so you need to build up someone's confidence one-to-one. And he would work in, in different ways, maybe in groups with other people. So Willie you know, it was psychologically evaluating people and saying, well, how do I get the best out of Andy? Well, I'd, I'd work in this way. How do I get the best out of Matt Jackson or, or Dave Watson? I'll work in a different way. So again, to speak to a psychologist about how they actually approach this, because there can't just be one way of dealing with it and just saying, we're going to treat you all the same way and you'll all come up trumps and everything will be fine because people are. And I, I do believe that 90% of, of sportsmen are, not exactly like me, but do have that worry of, of making the mistakes, of, of being the villain. Yes, we all want to, I, I didn't want to be the hero, but lots of people will, but lots of people that don't want to be, they just want to play their part in, in team success, especially when you're in a team sport. When you're a, a tennis player, clearly the work you have to do because it is only you. And when you're out on court, you can't take any coaching advice. And that is what is so impressive. And watching that Wimbledon final, the, the mental, the physical um, capabilities of the, is, is extraordinary just to cover the ground for five hours. But also the mental, especially Djokovic, I'm not his biggest fan, but his mental strength uh, to, to face kind of championship points and keep coming. He's done this for years and years. And is that, is that something people talk about, his arrogance? Is that something, again, the gene he was born with? Again, the psychologists, I'm sure, have to work on an individual differently than they work on a team sportsman because the dynamic is completely different. It'd be fascinating to find out, and it, it has to play a huge part because if you're, if you're working with Man City, what they're trying to achieve to, to win everything, to perform in the big games at the top of your game, it takes it beyond your technical ability. It's taken into the realms of, right, we've got to get inside your head so you can get the best out of yourself. Because once I've spoken to you and you go out on that pitch, You've got to, you know, what we've talked about off the pitch, you've got to then put into practice on the pitch. And it'd be fascinating to know how they do that. I'm imagining now Chinch would have been one of those on centre court, you know, there to support the overdog, Roger Federer, in his RF branded sporting apparel with the Swiss flag painted on <laughs> each cheek. We love you, Roger. Go on, Roger. I'm just a, I'm just a fan of, of sport. Oh, I'm just a fan of the, sport. The anti-Federer, who the, is Rory Smith, unfortunately able to be with us uh, to balance that well, I'm, out. Well, I'm, I'm channeling. I, I you channeling I, him. I, I, I just, I, Novak Djokovic is such an exceptional athlete. I cannot understand why there is not more love for Novak. It's, it's, he's it's, brilliant. It's, 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 and he, I know he's a bit grass, more mechanical. Eating the grass but, off the court. Again, but how he feeds off negativity is incredibly impressive because every, virtually everybody, apart from the Djokovic camp, in that in, in centre court wanted Roger Federer to win. It was pretty obvious, but he still had to actually use that to his own advantage and not to buckle under the pressure. That, again, if that's inbuilt, then that's what's made him so incredibly mentally tough and also if there's work that they've done with him as well to enhance that and say that every game you play they're going to want to see you fall how can you not fall it's it's, inc it's incredible what he's achieved I feel like it's, it's like a Messi-Ronaldo thing you know Federer against Djokovic but rather than a 50-50 split it's like be Djokovic against anybody if it was Nadal I still feel the same way because I just I, for something I can't warm to him but what I do warm to is his that ability to get the job done. But people He's an incredible tennis player, an incredible athlete, and, and the mental strength he has is extraordinary. But people don't necessarily warm to Ronaldo in the way they might warm to Messi, but they admire the, the athleticism and the, the, the remarkable professionalism of the Is of it the glistening thighs that you like, Stephen, as well? I do like a glistening thigh. Listen, yeah, if yeah. I don't have an oiled-up thigh in my life on a weekly basis, I'm not happy. But the well, point what we need to do, though, is, is speak to... So players coming out of the game and find out because if they if they if they're truly on maybe they can't do it immediately because again you don't want to be you don't want to talk about your failings or what maybe held you back but actually that's that's incredibly healthy because it did happen to you and that's why I have no embarrassment about talking about this because it's not just me that will have gone through this I guarantee it better players than me would have suffered with nerves and, and I used to bite my nails and I had to tie my bootlaces and even number of all these weird things that I put in place to help me cope with the situation that I was in. Now I don't do any of it. So again, it, that must have been the circumstances and my personality under those circumstances. That sounds like some OCD in there. I'm sorry, I am a bit, I am a bit OCD. But, but yeah. so you actually saying that, I'm, that I might be wrong, that you are quite typical 
but perhaps well, a little bit more frank talking about earlier it. on yeah that there's 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 a sense that there are, people- there are more people than you would imagine simply because of the few yeah. that display mm. these incredible qualities because if more than the few displayed them then surely there but would forget, be more people winning if, and it would be spread and diluted take sport out of the mix and just say people in general the people that you know not all of them are these perfectly formed, happy with themselves, happy with the world. I don't think any, but very few people you meet are actually like that. We all have kind of um, things that we worry about and, and we look at ourselves in a very different way than other people look at us. So that's, that's, that's human beings. But you take it onto a sporting stage and then the pressure that they're under to perform what they're good at at that level, they're, they're still human beings. So unless you're coached and helped to cope with that situation, you probably naturally, how, how do you learn how to do it? You have to be coached to do it. Experience going through that as well helps you if you take it on board and realize what works and what doesn't. But they're human beings. And actually, a lot of my friends, I, I look at them and I see them and they, in company, they seem, they've got everything that I would want. You know, if they feel, clearly feel good about themselves, they're happy with how they look, their, their job, their lives. But then the more you get to know them, yeah, you two are great examples of this. The more you get to know them, you see that they're basically made of glass. <laughs> and <laughs> shatter at any point. That's, that's definitely but that's as all. I think that's, that's true of, of, I think, 90% of most people. Can I give you two examples just to round off this conversation? Um, David Beckham with that free kick against Greece three years after being a national pariah mm-hmm. is a national hero because he scores that goal. But he scores that goal in, in, in injury time um, and he nails his skills yeah. at exactly that moment. I remember saying to myself, I think you, you've pra- had enough goes during this game. You've, you've practised enough. You should be ready enough. But to, it's how much to, he practised on the trip, how much work he put so, into to be as good as so he was. That, so that's part of it, preparation. Mm. There's also somebody like Zindine Zidane who would, in a World Cup quarter or semi-final, you know, Penenka a penalty. Uh, no, it was in the final, wasn't it? It was in the final of uh, the World Cup 2006. He Penenka's a penalty. Um, in Euro 2004, he scored that late uh, free kick against... Um, England, didn't he? Yes, yes, and he and he yes. and he threw up just before it. So this is a person who clearly has the ability to to p- perform against the odds in clutch moments. But he's also is he not nervous because he's throwing up on the pitch? So there's there's a kind of a strange understanding from him that yes, I'm nervous, but I'm still going. It's almost like I'm deliberately flying in the face of my nerves by doing something outlandish. <laughs> David Beckham is that slightly different kind of clutch gene where he just perfects a skill mm. so that he can perform it at any given moment. Well, that's basically what I was doing with, with the practice that I put in. I presume that's what, why, why Willie did David these Beckham things. very much an Andy yeah, Hinchcliffe. If we get Zinedine the on the pod, that'd be very interesting to ask him that very question about him chundering on the pitch. But also, um, <laughs> considering all what, what I've talked about and my kind of, what, what I, the fears that I had for my own performance, I never worried about playing in front of crowds. I always felt, you know, when I went over to take a corner at the Stretford End, and all the abuse would start. Hinchcliffe, you're a great player. You should be getting paid more money. Oh, stop it, please. Stop it, Reds. I, I never, I kind of... Come, come I, and join us, Chinch. We'll appreciate us. We'll appreciate you. I don't want to sign you. for you back in whenever. I'm not signing for you now. You're a bunch of no-hopers. Anyway, I used to kind of... Again, I think that is a shell. I've done that in many forms during my life. You do you do have to kind of swell, not in that way, and put a shell around yourself. And I'm going to be... A, a corner take get here. Get in I'm the not zone. Get, Be in and you, the zone. And you have to kind of, and you know, you smile at people. And that's not me at all. I would never react like that normally. So I was able to maybe at certain points when I knew I was going to be kind of front and centre because set pieces, I was taking everything. So actually I had no choice. I couldn't say, well, I'll hide behind somebody else while, and then run out and take it. So you have to... <laughs> so yeah. What a routine hey. that would be though, wouldn't it? Yeah. And here he is. Here's Neville Southall. <laughs> here he comes. Out of his pocket. <laughs> but again, so I was able to... And in a strange way, I kind of enjoyed that aspect of it. But again, I'd rather cross the ball for someone else to score than be the one taking all the glory. I don't know, it's kind of weird. So you're kind of enjoying certain aspects of it, but not wanting it to go too but far. And You're once removed from the responsibility there, aren't you? Yeah. You have exactly, the control yes. to be able to deliver something that isn't the be-all and end-all. It might well, True. if it's delivered well, mm-hmm. which it was, highly up the percentage of somebody being able to score from it, but yeah. the ball is not being delivered into you to provide a so less you're percentage chance. You're now lessening what I thought I'm I did really to, well. I'm trying to give, I'm trying to swell you once again, not like that. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's... It's helpful to know, I would imagine, at that stage that if I do my thing well and yes. somebody else messes up, I've still done my thing True, well and yes. I'm still within my bubble. Yeah, I never really thought about that. So that kind of, yeah. Oh, piling on it's to that. It's someone else's mistake. If I put a pinpoint cross in and they don't time their run correctly, well, it's, it's all, but I never saw, no, I, I would never saw it that way. I just do my job. They've got to do that. Might, it might have calmed you. It, yeah. Yeah, that's worried me now. I'm going to have to go home and have a, 
have a think about that. Apologise to a lot of people yeah. for using them as a scapegoat. But again, I to certain things, certain aspects of, of crowd behaviour towards you, I, I, it didn't... And you're thinking, of, well, if you're that kind of person who's playing in a cup final and you're terrified of, of, of making the mistake and you don't really feel you should be there, how can you feel comfortable trotting over to the Stratford End with all those people? I don't know. It's kind of... Maybe that's the contrast. But as time went by, it did become more... Again, it all, all boils down to the fact if you have support whether it be at home or not or and certainly when you go to to when you're at certain clubs and, and the coaches are very good and they're, they're clearly on your side it does very quickly and it did for me and if it, if it worked for me if I started to believe in what I was capable of doing and started to put it into practice then it can it can work for anybody but I, I'm, yeah not, not all football players are, are born to be heroes and, and can't wait to get out and play in a cup final and it, most of them will, will probably feel terrified by it. It's quite interesting, but again, just to, to round off on those two uh, aspects, um, well, two of the three aspects that we've spoken about. Steve, you mentioned the USA women's team. Their motivation was that single-minded mm. determination uh, to ignore all the noise and to, to, to know what their path was and to follow it. Whereas to handle the expectation. To handle the well, expectation and, and to sometimes, we've talked about siege mentality, only very recently, uh, to, to use that as their motivation. Whereas, for example, the England cricket team talked about just uh, letting all that go and being relaxed and enjoying it and trusting your skills and knowing that, that it'll all be fine. And You can say that, but is that what you're actually enjoying it, letting it all go? It's they're all, the they're all great phrases, but that's... When you, when you, you really speak, put that into practice? When you heard them speak afterwards, you got the impression, given that it was so tight and it ebbed and flowed, and there were so many occasions where England were seemingly out of the game in that run chase, and then uh, towards the end of the Super Over as well, well it looked like things were going against them. That there's just that sense that they were able to respond to that, to never give up, mm. but their motivation was a positive one as opposed to a... Yeah. A nominally negative one that we were speaking about with the USA women's team and Novak Djokovic. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, these are the things that motivate these groups of people and it may well be that in a strange circumstance the England cricket team have used something positive to trust what they've done for the four years prior and also to believe that it really doesn't matter. That might be something that can work too, yeah, although in, a, in a, a rarer situation. But again, it's, it's the fine margins, isn't it? Because we're using that as a, as a launch off point. They were also point. incredibly lucky. Well, exactly. <laughs> we're, we're, we're using something as a launch off point to discuss the, the benefits of mental strength and, and what that can lead to. Whereas if England had failed to beat New Zealand in that Cricket World Cup final, then the fact that they had... Exactly. The fact that they'd failed to chase down a fairly modest target of 241, which for non-cricket listeners is a fairly modest target in a 50 over game and that they'd only scored 15 runs in a super over where they had the luxury of really just sort of being able to to open their shoulders and, and hit out we would have been talking about how mentally they had fallen short when so much was and expected we, of we them. would have probably scapegoated somebody yeah because um, there's something about uh, our national culture that means that we have to have somebody to blame rather than just the culture. It would have been Joffrey Archer for bowling poorly in the Super Over or Ben Stokes not being able to affect two runs when it was... But sometimes the outcome doesn't mean that mentally you've, you've done the job or you've fallen short. Sometimes luck just plays a part in it. It can go. You can do the very best and you can be mentally tough and do everything right and it still go against you. I think it's very New harsh. New Zealand did that. In the yeah, it's World very Cup harsh time. to then say because of the result, you know, you missed a penalty in a shootout, you bottled it. No, you, everyone misses penalties. These things happen, but it's because of the circumstances and the result, it means that you, or you weren't mentally strong enough. Well, and, and a good football example from recently is the season that Leicester won the, the Premier League title and Tottenham were the team that kept them honest in, in pursuit of them. Tottenham were never out in front, were never the favourites to win the title, but they were the ones in pursuit. I think they won nine on the trot at one point in the latter stages of the season to try and catch up with Leicester. But when they failed to win the 10th game, oh, they bottled it. Mm. But then you see Leicester as a, as a team, the way that they play, the way that they won that title, again, shows incredible mental strength to, to, to average 40% of the ball and yet win the title. That's never, ever going to happen again in, in, in they, English football. They come into the second category, the positive category, of mm. just trusting what they're doing yes. is right and yep. believing that it might happen, and as opposed to the need for a siege mentality and shut out all the negative yeah, noise. Yeah, yeah. They also benefited from the fact that uh, there was just an assumption that, yeah, well, it worked last week, but it's not going to work against yeah. us. 
that just the sort of almost the arrogance of some everybody of the other teams else they apart from Spurs bottled it. <laughs> um, it is time for Nevermind Jack and Ori Water Soccer Story. This is when Andy tells a tale from his playing days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. Is it a story about how once in a really kind of important moment under pressure, mm. you absolutely nailed your skills and didn't bottle it at all? This is this this shows the incredible development in my mental state. <laughs> the the Championship playoff final, Aston Villa uh, against Derby. Now it's. Season after season, we, we, we wheel out the Sky Cart, which in essence is a big TV on wheels that has a touchscreen element so you can analyse things, which I'm very, very good at. And Liam Rossini is pretty good at as well. So we had this we plan. We got Aston Villa, we got Derby. I was going to talk a bit about Aston Villa and Tammy Abraham and all this kind of stuff in the semi-final. Liam was going to do some stuff on Derby's defending. So we, we've gone through with Sean, the producer. So there's three of us. We've been WhatsApping. We're in a WhatsApp group. Called, Sky I think it was called Touchscreen Posse. I, I named it that. So we'd done this for about 10 days working out. Andy Hinchcliffe has invited me to Touchscreen Posse. So this, is, this has I been a really chasing episode. I did start this off. So Sean and Liz, so we're going over and over and over what we should discuss. We've only got four minutes to do this thing. So we planned it for about 10 days. The Sky Cart has been at Wembley, pitch side, for four days. They've tested it. Everything's working fine. Absolutely great. They've got all the... the um, the clips loaded up on it so they know exactly what we want so we get there so I you know what I'm like I'm there four or five hours before so again I'm not trying to get because it is such a, a pressurized day that I tended just to we know it's all ready to go we'll have a look at it an hour before we really need it so we'll, we'll you know because everyone's wound up there's so much going on interviews and everything else so I, we just we just basically leave it alone so an hour before we're meant to do this thing which is about 10 past quarter past two we get there about one o'clock say so Liam gets there and there's a guy, the tech op guy, who's looking after things. I won't say his real name. I'll call him Tarquin. <laughs> he, he's chatting away about all the clips and everything else. And I, I can see him messing about with the screen, touching the screen, and not a lot's happening. And I'm thinking, right, okay, you do. This is a this is a touch screen, so we're going to need to stop and start the clips here because we've got stuff we want to explain. And he's going, oh right, oh, oh okay, you you want to stop and start it. Yeah, because in essence, if we don't do that, it's just a big telly. <laughs> and it, we got to about 35 minutes before we went on air, and he basically said to me, um, I've got a bit, maybe have a slight problem with this. Uh, the touchscreen element's not working. <laughs> I said, the touchscreen element of the touchscreen. And he said, uh, genuinely, he said to me, do you feel that might be a problem? <laughs> I said, well, you know, we're half an hour away, and so what can we do with it? You can look at the pictures, right? So the clips that we've got on there, we can just look at them, can we? How do we make them go? I don't know. You can't press the play button. Right. So this is, this is going to be a bit of a problem now. And the poor guy, Tarquin, was shell-shocked. Tarquin um, is definitely a tech art guy. He is. So anyway. <laughs> I'm not so the, the executive so, producer. So all these problems. So I'm not getting to, because these things happen. It is technology, but it's a big day. This thing must cost God knows how. And they've had it there for four days. So um, our production manager comes across because um, he's basically kind of the middleman between the producers and getting this stuff done. So he comes over and I said to this, oh, apparently, um, George, this isn't, this is, he really is called George. Uh, I said, um, the touchscreen element's not working. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, Tarquin, I nearly said his real name there. Tarquin <laughs> says, so George says, marches Tarquin, said, right, you can go and tell Sean it's not working. And I felt really bad because... I'm just happy to, there's a way of working it out, and we did work it out. They just played everything in. We did, we, it didn't work, so we just played all the clips from the truck. It worked perfectly well. It wasn't a problem. But this poor guy, who must be in his 50s, was frog-marched from Pitchside at Wembley all the way around to the tunnel where we have all our big trucks and where the producer Sean is, and apparently Sean ripped him a fresh one. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm thinking, again, what? But he said, we had this thing here for four days. How can it not work? But yeah, it might have worked on the previous four days, but half an hour before we go to use it, it, it doesn't work. So we're just going to have to roll with it and do something different, which we did. And apparently people who watched it didn't realize we never pressed any of the buttons. So we had all this, the clips all loaded down one side with kind of little, so you could see what, what we were going to maybe talk about. They were all labeled and stuff. There was all the, all the arrows and circles and everything. But we couldn't touch any of it because it didn't work. But again, this poor guy, and then uh, I remember when we went on air and did this, out the corner of my eye, I saw him just sat on like one of these, you know, these metal boxes that they transport all the, all the, all the stuff. Flight in, all cases. The flight cases. Just slumped. Tarquin was just a broken, broken man. 
And I did feel, and I did see him as we were doing like the handbag, and I'm, oh my god! But this poor guy, and I hadn't, because a lot of people do complain about this, and when they go wrong, they they blame. I say, well, why isn't it? Well, it's technology. These things happen. You've got to roll with it. They appreciate we feel like that, but to have this guy say to me, I might have a slight problem here. The pictures are okay, but you can't touch the screen, the touch screen, at Wembley. The biggest, the hundred million pound game, and we can't show how poor Tammy Abraham was in the semi-final. <laughs> it was just, I felt, but again, I just had to, rather than getting off, I start the season or maybe 10 years before that, I'd have gone completely to pieces because it, it wasn't what I planned to do. But I thought what you have to do is try and get it done. And we did get it done, but poor Tarquin, I just hope he's uh, still employed. But if you're, a, if you're a touchscreen operative and the touchscreen is inoperable. You could be on thin ice, couldn't you? But I felt so sorry for him, just sat there, slumped on a flight. Have course. you renamed your WhatsApp group Screen Posse? Uh, we should just call Big TV Posse. <laughs> Do you know what, Chinch? Don't worry too much about Tarquin. Daddy's money will sort him out. It'll be <laughs> fine. Just, it's It'll not really fine. called Tarquin, though, Steve. Oh. Oh, right, okay. It's is probably it? Dave from Epping, although that's not his name either. Might be Terry Arkin. <laughs> Uh, if you have a soccer story, please send them to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can also get in touch via Twitter or Facebook. Just search for Set Piece Menu uh, on Facebook. Please subscribe, share, rate and reviews. We humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Uh, thank you to Steve and Andy. Rory's back next week. Uh, thank you to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. So you've got other WhatsApp groups. Hugh's got other friends. I wouldn't say groups. I'm starting to feel like I've invested a little bit too much of myself into Hang this podcast. Hang on a podcast. minute. You, Steve has the dads from school. And oh, that is a good point. The yeah. dads from school. Every time you see him, And I bet it's S-K-O-O-L as well, oh, being really totally cool. School's out. No, yeah. no, no, school no none of we're, okay. we're all new school. We're not old school. Oh, how many people are in this group? Oh, Loads and boy, are they dozens, fun! Dozens, they're big drinks. Oh, I've got a hangover. Went out with the dads last <laughs> night. Oh, oh, yeah, up till one a.m. Oh, it's just so. I mean, I just, I, I wanted to stop, but they just carried on going. You don't get that with so posse. Don't, don't hate. Don't hate. Look, if if you just can't keep up with the guys in their late thirties and early forties midweek <laughs> drinking, then you know, you're just in the wrong game.